welcome to another episode of the Feminist Survival Podcast. I'm Amelia Nagoski. I'm Emily Nagoski. And today we are completing our series on how to listen to your body. This is the grand finale of how to listen to your body, which goes to the like weird sounding, non-realistic sounding edges of the stuff I have to do in order to communicate with my body. That sounds fun, right? Yeah, and it also happens to be stuff that I do deeply intuitively and have been doing since adolescence, early adolescence. Yeah, and people <laughs> like you don't think it sounds weird? No, it just sounds very normal. Yeah, why do you have to go to all that work, you think, all that effort to, to communicate with your body? Just do, just do it. Yeah, but how? Okay, so today's the how. Yeah, but how? Yeah, but how? To recap, we began with me talking to Allegra about why it's difficult for people to listen to their body, what the barriers are. And they included people's actual innate capacity or talent for doing it, um, which ranges from the clinically bad, people with alexithymia like me, to the amazingly good, like Emily. But most people are more like Allegro, which is why I was talking about her to start with. Uh, second is the lack of vocabulary or even the lack of just a general framework for what it actually means to listen to your body. Who's doing the listening and who's doing the communicating and what's their relationship with each other? We talked about the elephant and the rider, where the rider is your conscious self and the elephant is your body, your subconscious, your, you know, all the stuff that takes care of itself without you having to be aware of it. But I also kind of think of myself as a little puppy and my body as the trainer, as my owner who's trying to teach me, you know, how to pee outside. And I'm just a little puppy and I just don't understand that I've, I've got to really try to learn from what this incredible stranger is trying to get me to do. I know that it's trying to take care of me, but like, what? It's trying to say something, but it's like the yeah. Charlie Brown teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And then also the lack of vocabulary along the same lines. When you say listen, that implies to me or suggests using your ears to hear something. Like there's going to be sounds. Right, 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 right. And it's like, there's there's not sounds, but there's also not any other kind of other senses. Like it's not the five senses situation unless it's feeling, but actually it's about proprioception, which is where we went next with like understanding the interaction of your senses to your it's interoception. Nervous system. Yeah. Oh, sorry. That was interoception. Which is uh, noticing the sensations of your body. It's weird when you say that, like, listen to your body. It's true. Like, that for me feels very intuitive. And you're like, what sounds am I listening for? We don't ever say taste your body's internal experience. Like, we know that's different. It's just as odd. And it is just as, like, there are tastes that happen in my mouth related to different internal experiences. We all know that. Oh, maybe we don't all know that. Oh, do you remember... Um, on Brene Brown, Brene Brown asked this question, like, you know, you're when you're afraid and she describes like you can taste fear in the back of your throat. Mm -hmm. And like when you experience that, what do you do? And my answer was, well, I I first said I do not have that experience. <laughs> I don't have that experience. I don't relate to that description, which they cut from the Brene Brown podcast. Yeah. And you did not know at the time. I mean, like now you'd be like, I have alexithymia. I'm clinically unable to recognize that emotion. <laughs> Right, right. Which yeah, would have been, like, like so cut. useful. They cut it, though. Yeah, if I had known. Yeah, they cut that from Brene Brown because, I mean, it wasn't necessary. And uh, But they did go straight to me being, like, I just do the thing. I just, I don't really understand the sensation of fear. So I just, like, I understand that that's a, it's because I can't feel my own fear directly. <laughs> that I don't feel like I'm getting stopped from doing things. But also it turns out that's probably also autism. Yeah. <laughs> My inability to so I just like dive in and yeah. do shit because my my sense of danger is not the same as typical people's. Right. A anyway, um, what she described was like you can taste the fear in the back of your throat, and I finally had that experience between Brene Brown and now. I had that experience. It was like five months ago, and it was snowing, and but very very lightly snowing. So I went to the grocery store because the roads were clear in front of my house. But in the next town over where the grocery store is, the roads were not clear. There was snow. And there's this traffic circle that I approach from a downhill. And it's this bad, bad traffic circle. It's actually been on Ripley's Believe It or Not. It's so ridiculous. And I was heading into the traffic circle going downhill, going like five miles an hour, seven miles an hour, and like tapping my brakes because here comes another car. And I can see that if I don't slow down, 
this car is going to hit me. And I don't feel afraid. Like, I don't feel, I don't know. I don't feel afraid. There's no sense of fear in me, but I do taste a metallic, like, copper penny burn in my throat. I was like, am I tasting fear right now? That's exactly I think I'm right. tasting that's, fear right that's now. That's the adrenaline. It's literally the flavor of adrenaline. Yeah. And, and it, and it, like, I felt it. Cool. Like, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. So. I was able to pay attention to that and to notice it. It was fine, by the way. There was no, the other car turned out of the rotary before my, uh, before I got on another rotary. So I was on it and it was totally empty. So it was fine. But what a learning experience. So interoception is being aware of your body's internal signals. And then from there, we move to proprioception, which is awareness of your body moving through space. These are the signals that are sent literally by the movement of your muscles and joints, communicating to your brain the position and relative placement of your body in space right because of signals directly not from we're not talking about this is not your digestive system this is not your endocrine system this is your muscles and bones and joints where they are in space yeah movement balance right which we spend a lot of time talking about the relationship between basically you've got proprioception which is your limbs in space you've got your visual system which is also part of like where you are in space because it's a very like distant oriented sensation and then uh you've got your vestibular system which is movement of your head specifically because there's not a like head muscles to tell you proprioceptive information about the position of your head and balance and movement. So just to help people understand the clarification, imagine you're in a completely dark room and you are strapped down to a table flat on your back and the table both rolls to the side and tilts upward simultaneously. You have no proprioceptive information because your body is completely still. Your vestibular system is the one that tells you that you have moved, even in the absence of any visual input and in the absence of any proprioceptive input. Is that clear? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And uh, mine, I can feel a roll tilt, <laughs> like two standard deviations more sensitively <laughs> than a normal human being because I have, a, I have a broken vestibular system. So when you say imagine this possibility, this is an actual diagnostic test. Yeah, this is, <laughs> I mean, this is a thing they yeah. do. And uh, one of the things that doctors who treat this say is that patients cannot tolerate the tests. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, I literally like, I canceled mine because of snow and I did not reschedule it because the thought of yeah. being in that moving chair was like, under no circumstances, no, not unless yeah, you're going to let me yeah. drug myself. And I think that should yeah, be right. like a diagnostic. If the idea of sitting in a chair that moves by itself makes you be like, I am not going to do that. Yeah, that's a, that's a, seems diagnostic. That's a diagnostic. I feel like it should be. Anyway, so yeah, where we ended up actually with proprioception and balance, head movements is that no one is like literally feeling their muscle spindles sending signals. If you close your eyes and imagine the position of your body, you're using your imagination. Yeah. And if you can feel your body moving, you're not feeling any specific individual movement. You are building a comprehensive, imaginative, conscious awareness. Yes. Which is a conclusion that I got to out of two different things. One is my vocal training, which... I took two semesters of vocal pedagogy as an undergrad, which is, you know, how to teach singing. And and really what you learn is that you're not teaching the muscles to change. You teach the singer's imagination to guide them toward the sensations, whatever kind of acoustical sensation or whatever, in order to be able to find the right sensation and then to repeat it. And it's through their imagination that you train the the cartilages and muscles of the larynx. And also through conducting training, of course, uh, but primarily for me, it was through Tai Chi, where it was made very explicit what we're doing, that each movement has a story and an intention and is connected to a larger story. That means that, you know, that I'm one with the universe, basically, if you if you cut it down to the bare essentials and that really <laughs> the bare essential is that you're one with the universe. 
you're one with the universe that, that that the distinction between me and a tree and and the ocean and and the vastness of infinity is imaginary it's a it's a psychological construct that i've created in order to help myself deal with the impossibility of my existence right did i go too far yeah. like but yeah no okay. i mean that's that's what it is that, and that's what it we takes for me the last yeah. episode about that for me, a practice like yoga is about stripping away the stories, the metaphors, and the meaning, and just being aware of sensation outside the context of an explanation or a larger narrative. Just notice what's happening right now and allow it to be without doing anything about it and without having any insight about it. Yeah. And really, my only way into listening to my body so far has been through my imagination, connecting with my intention or a philosophy or an acoustical feeling, um, which is also connected to an emotional idea to express, to change how my singing feels, which is the primary way that I teach singing now. I mean, you, you, I'm a much better voice teacher when I remember that it's not about trying to get the singer's muscles to do a certain thing. I mean, it is about that, but the only way to do it is to, is to find the thing that makes them feel the intention that causes their muscles to go into that position. Yeah, this is the thing mediocre teachers don't get, is that just because you have a specific outcome in mind doesn't mean you should teach to that outcome. Yes, there there might be a different path that you have to follow yeah. in order to get to that final destination. And I also want to review just real quick for people, the, um, because this didn't, I didn't just figure this out on my own. I went through a series of different actual kinesthetic training so, like, I began as a very young child taking ballet lessons, which turned into tap and jazz. And we did that our whole childhood, mm -hmm. well into high school. But dance is really a one-way street. Dance is uh, the choreographer gives me instructions and my brain sends those instructions to my body and tries to just make it do it. And I never spent any time at all getting any feedback from the rest of my body. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Yeah, it's a one-way street. It goes one direction. The next step for me was Alexander Technique. I took a semester of Alexander Technique in undergrad. Alexander Technique is a method developed by a, an actor in Australia who noticed that he was losing his voice when he was acting a lot, and he wanted to learn to minimize muscular tension, to only use the muscles he absolutely needed to use and not tense things unnecessarily while he was working so that he could preserve his own strength and wellness long-term. So a lot of singers, a lot of musicians, and a lot of conductors are introduced to Alexander Technique in their musical training. And it, again, was explicit instruction in paying attention to my body. And for the first time, not just giving it instructions, but like trying to find where the tension is and to let it change. I ended up also taking like a year and a half of private Alexander instruction when I was in doctoral school. And the way an Alexander instructor works with a student is to send suggestions to their muscles. So like phrases like free into width, to free my body into width sideways, would just give a, an instruction through my imagination to my muscles to change how they stand. And with that, she would like stand behind me and sort of with the, the backs of her hands against my back sort of sweep outwards. Mm -hmm. Um, and that outward sweeping motion doesn't push me, doesn't physically shift me. It just gives a suggestion to my muscles of what to do. And and I could notice that. <laughs> By my 30s, I could notice when my muscles responded to suggestion. So that was this. So dance, Alexander Technique. Vocal training and Tai Chi. What training in Tai Chi? Vocal. Vocal training was that, but not on purpose. Yeah. And then Tai Chi was the final thing where it was, again, made even deeper and more explicit with more of a story about why it's necessary to listen to what I'm doing. And also, it's not just about my body here and now, but about my movement and my intention. So that's the, these are the four actual rigid formal training I had that taught me how to listen to my body that spanned a period of 35 years. Mm-hmm. That's what it took for me to get where I am now, which is not even close to where you are, because you have a gift and I have a clinical deficiency. Okay, so that's our review of like 
what we've talked about so far and what it took for me to learn these things and why I thought I was probably qualified to help talk to people about how to listen to their bodies because I've had so much, you know, trial and error, error and formal training and et cetera. And, and no talent. And, and zero talent. I mean, yeah, that makes me really good at teaching because I, I had to, I had to find my way there through every possible option. Yeah. yeah. Um, so today's the grand finale, which is where uh, um, I listen to my body and I talk to my body through my dreams. Mm -hmm. But as we discovered last week, that our body communicates with us in both directions, to and from, through our imagination. Does that seem true? Like the conclusion we reached last week? That's definitely, definitely yeah. true. Yeah. Some people get messages from their body in words. Some people get physical sensations some people get images uh some people have like an experience of just knowing yeah so i i don't have any of that so f for me i i learned in therapy i had a, a jungian flavored psychologist when i was in doctoral school and uh she asked well do you have vivid dreams and i was like yes very 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 vivid dreams and she said that's such a gift you can learn so much and i was like what that sounds dumb. And I was like, here's a dream that's definitely not a gift. I dreamt that there were three horses, a mama horse, a daddy horse, and a baby horse. And there are white horses running across a plane. And the baby horse starts to burn from the inside to catch fire. And it is burning to death while running, looking to its two parents in this intense suffering while they run. And uh, I was like, you know, that was just, it was horrible. How can that be a gift, this, this intense Seriously? suffering and pain? Yeah, 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 I know, I know, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And she was all like, well, to me, fire often means change. And is change always bad? And I was like, no, but it felt bad. And she was like, yeah, sometimes it feels bad. And I was like, what? And this is starting to make me think, Oh, maybe there's something to this. Maybe this is a metaphor. Yeah, maybe it's a maybe it's a message, not literally about horses and fire, but about something else. Some part of yourself that is burning away. And uh, she said, well, here's how you do the thing. So what I learned to do was to ask my subconscious a question before bed to write it down in a journal. Dear subconscious, X, Y, Z, here's my question. And then when I wake up, write down the dream in the present tense. I am walking down a hallway. I am riding on a bike. I am whatever, whatever. Uh, and then when I'm done with writing out what I remember of the dream, give it a title and a caption. Like if it was a movie, what would the little catch line be? You know, I can't think of any catch lines. Like if you were advertising the movie, what would you say to people? Snakes on a plane. Snakes on a <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I don't remember what actual specific dreams I ended up taking to her with this method, but it definitely trained my subconscious that it could tell me stuff. It could talk to me. My subconscious learned that this is a way it can tell me things that I need to know. Um, and I know this because as I started practicing this, which I have, I mean, this is a decade ago, more than a decade ago, as I practiced this, my subconscious got really good at making the answers extremely clear. One very memorable dream that I worked on was I asked the question, I felt like really good, like not too much stress. I felt like I was doing well. And I was like, okay, subconscious, I know we've been putting off dealing with some stuff for a while. So let's go ahead and do it. Just show me what I need to know. What's, what's missing from my progress here? Like what, what have I been avoiding? And it gave me this really explicit dream that like violently reenacted some bad stuff from my past. And I was like, Okay, gotcha. <laughs> We're not done. We're not done. And we've been avoiding some big stuff. Um, and it was very literal and very obvious. Oh, like, wow. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, dreams. Thank you, imagination. And the other was a dream that I talked about on the podcast, uh, asking about my, asking my body what's wrong. And it showed me like a tall skyscraper with like the inside missing and like rickety boards that were just falling apart and people were falling down the the middle central shaft of this building and it was clearly Oof. about my digestive system remember that one oh yeah 
Yeah. So like that kind of literal thing, this happened because I asked my dreams a question and it started answering me really explicitly and really clearly. And it, it learned, we learned a language of each other. So like, this is me as the puppy getting trained to understand yeah. what my owner is telling me. And my owner learning how to talk to me in very short, simple words, sit, stay, lie down. And go pee. That's, yeah, that's what it took for me. That's, but I, I mean, I directly worked with talking to my subconscious because I don't, look, I'm, I'm trying to deal with like uh, neuropsych pain. Neuroplastic pain. I'm sorry. I'm trying to deal with like neuroplastic pain and symptoms through this imagination way. But all the resources available are really like doing a meditation where you take a deep breath and connect with your body. And I'm like, I can't just do that. Like that just doesn't help me. Any meditation that is about that is, this is one of the reasons meditation has been kind of pointless for me. Meditation of being present and just practicing being non-judgmental is really great for me. But anything where it's trying to like connect with something, like I have to literally be unconscious in order for my body to have enough access to my working memory uh, to, to, to make it available to me. Does that make sense? Yes. So for you, using your imagination is your literal subconscious asking your hyper-associative dream state brain to explain something to you. And then it does. Yeah. You write it down and you spend some time interpreting it. And when you recognize what it is, do you have a physical experience of that truth? Yeah. What does that feel like? Um, you use, in Come As You Are, you use this bell thing. Yeah. Like it just rings like a bell and it's just true. It feels like that. Like it just resonates correctly. Yeah. It also happens when I analyze music or when I'm reading a story over and over and over and over and over again because I'm autistic and that's the thing that I do. Um, the better I get to know a work of art, the more I see patterns in it that speak to me and feel true to me. So I can also access it through interaction with so you can learn about yourself through finding your what it is in a story that makes you have that resonate like a bell feeling. Exactly. So like there's this piece by Mendelssohn that uh, Allegra and I conducted in our master's program called um, it's from the end of an oratorio. It, the text is he that shall endure to the end shall be saved. And the music goes, he that shall endure to the end, that he that shall end has this, because it's the same pitch over and over again, it has this heavy like, dromp, 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 dromp feeling to it. And endure to the end has this kind of falling away ease where it gets easier. And then the words shall be saved are just shall be saved, which is really smooth and easy and light. So it has this contrast of these two experiences, this endurance, this plodding, and this light release. And when I analyzed that and found this sensation of, of endurance leading to this light, easy state of what Mendelssohn was calling salvation, it like reached inside me and like pulled my insides out and was like here's the truth about life um yeah did that have an ending that you understood that this was the end of the story yeah except that so when i okay so like i would need you to explain to me why it gives the feeling that it does but i was like okay so it's a march and then you fall into like the cloud of salvation at the end and rest and joy and safety and love and all the good things at the end because it's like pretty floaty Mm -hmm. But for me, it's so the combination of the language and now I know the music gives a feeling and and it's like beautiful and lovely. And the idea, especially because it's like a God thing. Yeah. Like if you can just keep getting through this, God is going to hold you in the palm of his hand and all that stuff, which mm -hmm. like that is faith that saves people's lives. Literally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Either challenge you to the end. Yeah. But what was it? And, and so, like, when it comes to, like, people of faith hearing that, I totally understand why that would be, like, hugely powerful. And for mm -hmm. someone like me, who is, like, deeply visceral in her understanding of the world, 
it's really powerful because it just takes me right there. Like it like links into my experience of the enduring March and then uh, and then the flopping into the cloud sofa of safety and uh, groundedness. Yeah, because you've had that experience. So you're like, oh, yeah, Mendelssohn, me too. Yeah. Yeah. So why does it why does it help me? Yeah, it helps me not because I've had the experience and been aware of it, but because it's like Mendelssohn explaining to me what it's like to exist in the world. And I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like hearing somebody else explain better the thing that I've been trying to explain. Like, I, I have this vague awareness that there's something. And then Mendelssohn comes along and he's like, here is what you're trying to say better than you could ever have said it. And I go, yes. And is what he's trying to explain the the like sort of experience of the almost unendurable march for example um for me okay are you like yes unendurable march yes and hope that it will lead to something and then yeah and 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 then like messy progress leads to place to go and is place to go like hope or is that like it like brought me to a place that feels good and safe or what is that what it was was that I was in this intense and very difficult master's program and it was so hard and where it was going to lead was to someplace better. That was the idea. But I was in the middle of the hard and then I conducted this piece that said he that shall endure to the end shall be saved. And I was like, oh, oh, thank you, Mendelssohn. I needed that right now. Well, there you go. It was literally happening. Yeah. Music, dreams. Stories, yeah, and also all kinds of visual art, and even now it's in like architecture and 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 the ocean and nature. Like I can see it everywhere now, but Mm -hmm. that's because I've been working on it for so goddamn long. And you've also talked about the ways that seeing it in your dog helped you be able to see it in you. Yes, yes, because my dogs are animals and they just do the things they have to do, Mm -hmm. and I go, oh. That's what it's like to just do the thing you have to do. And horseback riding, same thing. You And horseback riding, that's another formal training that directly asked me to learn to recognize how my body feels, to communicate back and forth with instructions and get feedback, not just from myself, but also I got the feedback from the horse under me. Like, <laughs> not only are my legs and my ass telling me that's things, literally but literally a horse- ton of information. That the horse literally responds in a certain way that lets me know that I have done something right or wrong. Yeah. And conducting itself as a communication is a lot like horseback riding, where how the ensemble responds to me tells me more accurately what I'm doing than what I believe I'm doing. Yeah. That's how writing is for me when I get feedback from an editor. Yeah. Their response tells me whether or not I have done the thing I was trying to do. Right. And it's so easy under those kind of circumstances to blame the choir, blame the editor, blame the horse. Say, I'm not doing it wrong. You're just stupid. You don't understand. But when you learn yeah. to take the, the feedback as information of a change you can make. And when you're in front of, when you're with a horse. It's... I don't find it easy to, to blame the horse or the choir or the editor. Oh, I think a lot of people lash out because they get negative feedback. Something goes wrong. And their first instinct is not, I've done something wrong. Their first instinct is, you don't understand. Yeah. My first instinct isn't even, you've done something wrong. I, you've done something wrong or I've done something wrong. My first instinct is, I didn't get where I wanted to go there. I didn't communicate the thing I okay. intended to communicate. You, you need to know that you're a total freak show. All right. <laughs> That's bizarre. Anyway. Because I am a middle-class white lady in the United States in the 21st century, I really resonate with this poem by Rumi. (laughs) Of course you do. That I think can be also, because poetry is another way. So you are seeing your experience reflected back to you. You need something to reflect it back to you instead of hearing directly from your body. And that is not worse. That is fine. It's just different. And in fact, that is what Rumi wrote a poem about. Are you ready? Okay, do it. A story is like water that you heat for your bath. It takes messages between the fire and your skin. It lets them meet and it cleans you. Very few can sit down in the middle of the fire itself 
like a salamander or Abraham. We need intermediaries. A feeling of fullness comes, but usually it takes some bread to bring it. Beauty surrounds us, but usually we need to be walking in a garden to know it. The body itself is a screen to shield and partly reveal to light that's blazing inside your presence. Water, stories, the body, all the things we do are mediums that hide and show what's hidden. Study them and enjoy this being washed with a secret we sometimes know and then not. Yeah, that feels... Is that what you meant? That, that's what I meant. Okay. Thanks for me for saying it better than I could say it. Right? <laughs> this is what artists are for, is to say the things. <laughs> so for me, when I first read this poem in 2014, when I was like in the depths of writing Come As You Are, I read this and I was like, oh, I'm the one who sits in the fire. Right. Like Abraham. And you you know the story of Abraham. Uh, no, I don't know. No. It, the fire thing? Yeah. So Abraham will not renounce his God. So the king literally sets him on fire, ties him up and sets him on fire. And Abraham has an angel with him. And what happens is the fire burns away the ropes. Ah. And he can free himself. Yeah. Very few can sit down in the middle of the fire itself like a salamander or Abraham. I remember that Medium story. To meters. Yeah. So when I read it, I was like, oh, I'm somebody who goes into the fire. Right. The ones who make the art go into the fire. Yeah. The ones who make the art. I mean, every artist knows like how hard it is to make things. I wrote in my annual review for the university where I was applying for tenure that writing a book was when I said writing, I mean, typing while crying. That was what writing burnout was. Yes, it was. It was it was just that's what writing is it, as far as I know. Yeah, it's typing while crying. Like, because if you dig deep enough, and honestly, being a conductor, being a musician, if I'm doing it right, it it hurts me a little. It, I have to cut myself open a little, at yeah. least a little. The better I do it, the more I'm required to to wound myself, to open myself, to to get sort of uncomfortably real with some people that are not, you know... My, you know, immediate family who will just forgive me no matter what, because <laughs> they have to. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, artists sit in the fire so that they can communicate to other people so they can have the experience of heat without burning. So Haruki Murakami, the novelist, mm -hmm. in his book, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, he writes about a toxin that is buried deep in every human psyche, and it's unearthed in the process of telling a story or making any piece of art it's like the slag from a refining process mm -hmm. and unless you have a a mechanism in place to process and purge that toxin the process of creating something will poison you slowly yeah and uh he compares it to cooking a fugu fish which is this fish that it's a it's like pufferfish, it's the, the famously, like the most delicious part of it is right next to this lethal poisonous part of it. Uh -huh. So you have to train as a chef, like so that you can not poison the people you're feeding. Yes. Right. For me, that experience is also what it's like to, I mean, as a conductor, a solid 50% of my work is preparation. Of, of learning the score and coming to understand it. And to, I mean, the composer has acted as the me intermediary between me and the fire then, but then I've got to act as the intermediary for the choir. So I need to like get as far as I can out of the water and reach into the fire as much as I can to, to be with the composer's intention as, as, as hard as I can. And I think that's the hard part that people don't want to do when they try to participate in the arts. Um, people are resistant to classical music, for example, because it reaches deep into something. Mm, well, the, the what was the thing about the toxin at the very something something? The most delicious part of the flesh is immediately adjacent to the lethally poisonous part. Yeah, but it, it goes all the way to the poisonous part. It goes all the way to 
bit. And if I'm being a good conductor, a good um, advocate for the composer, I I cut all the way to the poisonous part so I can see what he left out or what she had included on purpose or what might have been behind any particular choice. Does that make sense? Yeah. So analysis does this too, and that's one of the reasons why listening to music um, feels so cathartic for a lot of people. It's it's visceral, it's physical, but it's also like reaching deep down into something true. The The easier music is to listen to, the less likely it is that we will allow it to reach us deeply. But there's a, there's a kind of a blending point between communicating great mysteries of the universe and being catchy there's a there's a complete spectrum between those two distant points and most music has some of both yes and experiencing it on like a superficial level with the catchiness yay that's great but one of the reasons music is so powerful to so many people is because it it does it, it reaches down to the to the poisonous part that tends to be the music we like the best it tends to be the music we want to sing at karaoke, you know? Either it's totally silly or it really, it, it strums our pain with its fingers and tells us our life with its words. Killing me softly with his song. Killing you softly with his words. Singing your whole life. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Roberta Flack. You're, you're, you're great. So the moral of the story we want this to be is that one of the most powerful ways to listen to your body is to experience the ways your body is reflected back to you by literally everything around you, literally anything around you. Because the difference between you and that tree or you and the other person next to you is imaginary. It's a psychological construct developed by your mind to help you deal with the fact that your existence is basically infinity. Yes. It's, but yeah, but just if you just want to cope day to day, just remember that <laughs> who you are is reflected in everything around you. Yeah, we don't need to go all the way to you don't technically exist. We can just Although, get to when you read a story and you feel something true, it's telling you about you. It's not telling you about, I mean, maybe it's telling you something about the author or about like stories in current society or whatever. But really, your response to the media you consume is telling you something yeah. about you. Yeah. If you learn how to reflect on it. Yeah, my Jungian flavored psychologist who taught me about the dream work also focused on using literature as therapy with when a book grabs onto you, exploring why it is that there's been this hook that made you need to go back to that thing over and over again. Um, it's the same. It's the same thing. Does, did that make sense? Did that? Yes. Okay. There's something in there for you to learn. That's yeah, yeah. You get you get drawn into it because it's some, there's something there for you. Yeah. And if people need, I mean, we've been talking a lot of like you know poetry and music and shit, and like neurologically, we we talk about it all the time that your brain doesn't really know much of a difference between when you do something physically in real life and when you just imagine it very vividly. Yeah. You get a whole lot of the which same is why learning. you can't even imagine sitting in that chair for that test. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine it, and no! And you don't want to, right? Exactly why it's intolerable to you. I literally feel a little bit dizzy imagining being in the moving chair that they use to test my disorder. Because your brain barely knows the difference. Because it's going to trigger my fucking disorder! (laughs) And I know that, and no. Because your brain barely knows the difference between, like, what it's just expecting versus what it's actually experiencing. Yeah, it barely knows the difference. Yeah. Which is why imagination can be so powerful. It's because your brain barely knows the difference. So if you... I'm not sure, like, who this is for, because clearly... Well, it's, it's for Allegra, at least. She wanted to know how I do the dream thing. So there you go, Allegra. How Amelia does the dream thing for Allegra and the use of stories and art and music and imagination generally to hear the messages of your body reflected back to you from something else. And it's important for you because you don't hear your body unless it's reflected back to you off of some other surface. Yeah, lots of people can get there through meditation. They take a deep breath and they focus on their internal experience and they get a message that's visual or verbal or experiential. And And that's their imagination. Right, right. Or they, but they get it directly. And I, 
I need to be completely unconscious in order for my yeah. subconscious to. So I will just add on to this. If you feel like you're like advanced and you're like, I could do all these things. I like deeply resonate. I feel like the bell. Like, yes. When I engage in like different ways of using my imagination and participating in art and stories, let me just add this, this further part of using having the parts of yourself talk to each other, like internal family systems, which I'm sure we've mentioned before. When you're dealing with neuroplastic pain, some of the most common interventions, so this is pain that's not associated with a, a tissue damage. It's just because you've got this hypersensitized central nervous system and you need to train your central nervous system not to react as if everything is a threat. And one of the most common interventions is to have you like sit, sit down and write a letter to the part of yourself that is uh, afraid that something bad is going to happen. Or literally, uh, you can have a two-sided conversation with your dominant hand. You can write the things that you know are true. And with your non-dominant hand, you can write from the subconscious part of yourself. Like you ask it questions and it can respond to you through your non-dominant hand. And I love that shit. I can do that forever. Wow. Like the different parts of myself super want to like have conversations. I can use my, I mean, I write novels <laughs> fictitious people have conversations in my head and i don't know what they're gonna say until they say it so the <laughs> fictitious parts of me that are actually all just me can easily have conversations and i have no idea what they're gonna tell me ahead of time so when i listen to my body i am literally like listening to the conversation i am having with the parts of me and usually i can see that part of me it has a physical appearance and it has a voice and it has some feelings. And when that part of me has feelings, of course, like I am having the feelings, but I am also simultaneously having the experience of being the person who's listening non-judgmentally to all of those feelings. So if you're like, I want to go big with this stuff, internal family systems. Yeah. And there's literally just a book called self-therapy, self-therapy, right? Where you can therapize yourself. I walked into my therapist's office after spending a week doing this. And I told her like all this stuff about the parts of myself and like what exiles I had met and what protectors I had and what role they played and like all the different ages. And she just was like, wow. Because <laughs> all this stuff lives in my head. I have, it's, it's a very busy place. One of the reasons right. I think I'm such a strong introvert is that the inside of my head is already plenty stimulating. And the outside yeah. world is like, that's just a lot. Like, I don't need anything. I'm so entertained by the inside of my head. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I, yeah. I needed Tai Chi in order to be explicitly taught what to pay attention to. When you're moving so slow, it seems boring. But no, in fact, there's so much happening. And you just have to notice that it's happening. And somebody had to tell me. Hey, hey, there's there's stuff happening. You should um, pay attention to it. Yeah. What? There is? Turns out, yeah, there is. Yeah, there totally is. So how to listen to your body? You practice. That's how you get to Carnegie Hall. <laughs> practice. <laughs> that joke's not going to make sense to, to uh, almost anyone. How to get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, 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 practice. Yeah. It's the guy arriving in New York asking a cab driver, hey, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice. Okay, we went about that all backwards because like, I assume people would know that reference. People know that reference. It's a joke. I truly, I don't joke. know. I am not the right person to ask if that's like yeah. something people know. But we, this is a series about listening to your body. And where we ended is... Was art. Yeah. Art is letting the in, your internal experience be reflected back to you in everyone and everything that you interact with. Yeah, when I first started studying conducting at the conservatory where I got my master's degree, the conducting professor who taught my first semester said that if there was a textbook for the course, it would be An Actor Prepares by Stanislavski and Zen in the Art of Archery, because both of those books are about breaking down the barrier between conscious and subconscious to allow real intention and and truth to come out of you unfiltered by your reservations or your fears or your social pressures to yeah. make what is true just happen in your body in a way that can be seen or measured externally 
So I think the way I would sum up the How to Listen to Your Body series is that no matter how difficult or easy you find it to listen directly to the signals of your body, you literally can't not listen to your body because every experience you have, every human you engage with and have a response to, every beautiful thing you see, every story that you read, every song that you listen to, is your body telling you something about itself. You can't not. You are listening to your body all the time. All you have to do is recognize that that's the voice you are hearing. Eh? Ah. Is that good or is that terrible? No, that's that's good because, yeah. Um, Allegra asked me, but if you if you stubbed your toe, you'd feel that. Yeah, sure. And I also said, if you break the skin, I'll probably feel it. But it has happened several times since we started recording this series that I have looked at my hand or like I've been touching something and I leave behind blood. And I'm like, where did that blood come from? Oh, my hand is bleeding. And I didn't even notice. And then my physical therapist asked, would you feel a stone in your shoe? And I was like, eventually. But my experience would actually just be of being uncomfortable and I couldn't tell why I wouldn't know why and eventually if I was walking on it or if I got some clear feedback at some point I'd be able to isolate the discomfort to my foot so I, I told a lie at the beginning of the thing which is that oh if you break the skin I'll feel it but no no it's and it's not that I don't feel a thing it's that I don't I can't tell what the thing is does that make sense does that need to be included yes I think the moral of the story of this episode and the series of how to listen to your body is actually that you can't not listen to your body because your body is talking to you all the time through your experience of interacting with any human that you meet, of any visual landscape that you see, any song that you hear, any story that you consume, your body is always talking to you. The key is to learn to interpret those signals in a way that gives you the information that you need. And how do you learn to translate? Practice. And you've got 78 options for how to do that. <laughs> Mindfulness, obviously. Tai Chi, yoga, horseback riding, vocal training. What else? Uh, analyzing the stories and the music and the images that grab onto you and won't let go. And your own dreams. Your own dreams. And it will give you information that your body is trying to tell you. Because the story actually is, well, your reaction to the story is you. Yeah, your reaction to the story is you. Did Which, we do it? I think we talked about how to listen to your body. Did we solve how to listen to your body? Forever and yeah. always for everyone. What I expect is that some people are going to be like, really, that's it? That's 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 how you do that? And um, they might be disappointed because there's less magic to it. And I expect some people are going to be so relieved that that's really all it is. That's really all it is. Yeah, it's your senses and it's your internal organs telling you things. And it is your muscles and joints and bones. And it is the way you react to stories. And your attunement to those reactions and your capacity to understand the language your body is speaking. Yeah. Like the puppy trying to understand. What, what do you mean when you say sit? What is sit? Like that's a cool group of phonemes, but like, what does that mean? Yeah. I like the puppy analogy. Parable. I like the puppy parable. The parable of the puppy. Mm-hmm. I think it's better than Abraham because Abraham didn't really burn no that's the point his faith abraham was freed by the fire there was something that protected him which was his faith see it seems to me that that's bullshit because if you've been protected and you haven't been wounded then there was no risk and you didn't take anything on like you know history the bible does not relate abraham's experience of the fire except to say that he walked out it doesn't say that he wasn't afraid. It doesn't say that he didn't experience pain. It didn't say that he wasn't, he didn't feel like he might die. History does not relate that. But my own experience in the fire is that it feels like you could die. And what you do is you surrender to it. Yeah. And you let it take over. And it is that surrender that burns away, that lets the ropes 
turn to ash and you will always survive. One of the things I say over and over again in the new book that I'm writing is that difficult feelings are never inherently dangerous. Just because it's uncomfortable and scary doesn't mean it's any kind of threat to your well-being. You can go all the way deep down into like suffocating sobs. Yeah. And you're not going to die. Your body will just take a break when it needs to. Yeah. It's useful in that context that there seems to be fire and you are afraid, but you're going to be protected. But sometimes you actually burn. And for those of us who are on fire, standing in the fire that fuels us, that's, um, that's not helpful in the story. We need, the, we need to know about Abraham's pain and fear. We need, we need to hear about people who suffered and survived, which is, I think, why it was so compelling that Mendelssohn made the music feel like suffering, like heaviness, like drudgery, like barriers, and then made it feel like relief. It didn't just, it wasn't just like, you're gonna be fine. Like, it was, things are hard, but you're gonna be fine. You know? Do you mean like feelings are tunnels and you have to go all the way through the darkness to get to the light at the end yeah <laughs> yeah the story as you told it the first time was like where's abraham's tunnel where's his darkness yeah because like all he had was light at the end like yeah i mean if you know there's light at the end it's not hard to get to the end the, of the tunnel the fire burns away you're... the ropes all the bible tells us is the fire burns away the ropes it does not tell us that abraham was terrified for his life and like what the fuck god we don't know. Yeah. We don't yeah. know what Abraham no, thought. Know. It depends on the on the preacher, probably what they'd make of that experience. But we can all read stories because the best stories are the ones that take us through the fire. In fact, a story is like water that you heat for the bath. It takes a message from the fire to your skin. <laughs> Thanks, Rumi, for saying it better than I could. Thanks, Mendelssohn, for saying it better than I could. And so there you go. That is our comprehensive explanation of how to listen to your body. Too long didn't read? The answer is practice. <laughs> I hope that's helpful. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. I am Emily Nagoski. I'm Amelia Nagoski. Uh, if any of this is written, it's written by us. If it's edited, it's edited by my marital euphemism. If there is any music, it is by... Me, I guess. Yeah, if, if there's music one day, maybe Amelia will write a song. About how to listen to your body. I have tried. It's it's difficult. I mean, it took how many hours of podcasts to talk about it? Yeah, it's not easy. Yeah. Stay tuned for an episode about post-pandemic body changes and how to tell the patriarchal bikini industrial complex to go fuck itself. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you, dreams. Thank you, imagination. The Feminist Survival Project 2020 is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.